Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Friends, welcome back to the show. We are in week three of Monster Month. Final Monster we're talking. That's actually week four. We're fourth month, third monster, fourth part of it. Today we have our old friend, Jonathan Merritt. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Hello. It's like, it's, I feel like it's been a while. It's kind of a, is, is it, is this a homecoming? It is. It is. We're playing that Jay-Z song. Uh, I'm coming yeah. home. Tell the world I'm coming home. Which is, I mean, it, it feels like we, I don't know how many times I've been on your show, but, but I feel like I've been on it a lot over the years and then I've listened to it a lot over the years. So it does Aww. sort of feel like. Oh, look at you saying sweet things to me. We obviously did meet through the podcast. Um, what book was it? Uh, it wasn't Jesus is Better, I don't think. It, um, yeah, it's our own, maybe? Yeah, I think that was it. I remember my dad and I talked about, because you had some stuff in there, about having to forgive old James, who's also now a friend of the show. Uh, was that Faith of Our Own? That you had uh-huh. some stuff like that, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, who could forget live podcast in Austin, Texas, St. Matt's. Oh, yes. Remember I that? forgot that. That was so fun. That was good times. Yeah, the, was uh, friend of the show, Merrill Wade, I was just texting with him this morning. He loved that. He had a lot of fun talking with you. He was, oh, man, I he's did a big too. fan. I did too. So, he's a good guy. As someone who has a unique perspective, which one is the right church? The Churches of Christ or the Episcopal Church? You know, I have often thought about churches, uh, choosing churches, choosing denominations, or choosing um, traditions. It, it, I think that we misframe it when we think about right churches and wrong oh, churches. Oh, come on! You know, we get just go with I it. Do, I do. I think. I think. I think about it as a choice between imperfects, and for some people, there are churches that are better for them, um, or or worse for them. And I will tell you. Right now, if I were choosing between, you know, those two denominations, we'll, we'll leave the individual churches out of it because, you know, it, it, not every Episcopal church is the same. Not every Church of Christ is the same. I would probably choose the Episcopal. Oh, church. come on, man. However, You're on my podcast. At various points in my life, I was moving in different ways and there were different wells of wisdom in other traditions that I needed. And it doesn't mean that I've evolved beyond them or that this is better than them. It's just uh, a, an acknowledgement of where I am now spiritually and that the wells of wisdom that are concentrated within certain traditions meet my spiritual needs and help kind of further my spiritual goals in ways that other spiritual traditions just can't. Is there something in the merit gene that make you guys immune to my games that you're just like I'm not going to play your game? Just it's it's because it's because you've been playing them so long now. Now I know I know right when it's coming. Well, okay, fine, fine, all right. Well, okay, we'll come up with some different techniques for this one. So hmm. you're uh, uh, as people might remember from your writing, you're in New York now. Uh, you've been gone. You went to uh, upstate. Is that how? Yes. You people in New York refer we're in upstate. Do you just feel yeah. a little pompous when you say I'm going upstate? I kind of do. Yeah, I kind of do. There's a there's a house up there called the Chatham House, and if people follow me on Instagram, they probably see me at the Chatham House, which is this old 19th century farmhouse uh, on a few acres out um, about two and a half hours north of here, and. It's been a place where I've taken sabbaticals. It's been a place where I've experienced a, a heck of a lot of healing. 
And uh, it is the place where I spent the last three months trying to sort of figure out what it looked like to survive the stresses of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And so it's, it's this special place that I go and, and heal and reflect and pray and meditate and grieve and cry and laugh. And uh, it is... It is the kind of place you go. You know, it's like the Celts when they would talk about thin places. Um, You know, the owner is not a Christian. There's nothing Christian necessarily about it. But it vibrates with spiritual energy. And so you almost always walk away from there saying, this Mm. gave me exactly the thing that I needed, whether I knew it or not. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, there are definitely those thin places where you go and you just know there's something substantial that happens here. Every time... I make the trip to Albuquerque, and I made a handful of times at this point to go see Richard Rohr. I always feel like, and that's kind of a, that's kind of a cop out answer, like because you're around Richard Rohr, so it should be a spiritual experience. But just that trip to New Mexico always feels like, oh, this is something where I, I feel like there's going to be some meaningful encounter that I'm going to come back different from. So that's that Chatham House is that for you? Yes, that's yeah. Great. I think that I think that's right. I think that's right. Hmm. And so you've been back now in uh, in New York, and you moved to. Like on campus at a seminary, is that right? Or yeah, I am uh, to to connect to your previous question. I am I am at the General Theological Seminary of the Episcopal Church. Huh? And sure. So, you feel like you should have said fact, that earlier. You feel like you should have said I that earlier. Feel like, <laughs> I feel like Mayor actually uh, is is went here or something or has some connection. Yes, yes he did. Uh, That's it. Because we hmm. talked about possibility of me moving here. So do you remember, it's how, do you remember Fire Festival? Like Fire Festival, like that uh, was a big deal a couple yeah. years ago. Yeah. You know, one of the things that came yeah. out after that is that Instagram influencers had to acknowledge when they were making an ad online because uh-huh. they had to be honest about what they were saying. Yes. Well, what so, does that mean? Do you oh, feel like when God. you answer that question, like you're living no, off no. the Episcopal Church? No, listen, I. I am lucky hmm. to live here, but I also have to pay. I pay to live here and I take classes. So I am a student. I'm actually a student, student of this uh, seminary. So wow. I'm, I'm studying ascetical theology. A st- that's a fancy word. They it don't is. say that in the Baptist church that you grew up in, do they? I don't think they have that kind of. They don't. I, no, no, this is the truth. Uh, a lot of evangelicals, from a linguistic standpoint, they get very uncomfortable if you put any adjective on the front of theology, unless it's systematic or biblical or yep. there's about three or four adjectives. But if you if it's a contextual adjective, they, they don't really like that. And so, no, there's no ascetical theology because it just sounds like you're getting away from, from uh, actual theology. Okay, we'll get- so that's not, that's not a part of the Baptist tradition. Say I wanted to learn to speak God from scratch. How would you teach me that word from scratch? Ascetical? Ascetical theology is basically, I think the, I think the way that you would have to begin to approach it, there's like the question before the question. Like I can give you a definition of it, but then there's the feel of what ascetical theology is about. And in order to get the feel of it, it's practice-based, it embraces mystery. It makes a lot of room for personal experience rather than just kind of a post-enlightenment uh, rationalism. 
uh, mystics in the Middle Ages were, yeah. were a big part of that. Monks have been a big part of that. A person like Richard Rohr is a part of that. People who are uh, ascetical theologians will often say a lot more about what God is not than what God is. So mm-hmm. it, it's a very popular way of do uh, of thinking about um, this, the, the inner life, the spiritual life, and theology in Eastern expressions of Christianity, not so much uh, in... Um, in, in the Western world. So for a lot of people, it feels weird and they want, they, they want you to like stop playing the games and go back to doing theology. Straight, the way yeah. They, yeah. But, uh, but I, I love it. It's challenging and it, and it's forcing me to read people and to come into contact with ideas that honestly, I, I, have never encountered in my life. And, and I think anytime you do that, you're either going to evolve or you're going to be more sure of what you already believe. And either way, it's a win. Yeah, for sure. I, I think there's an attitude that people are afraid of learning new ideas, which I think is more a reflection of a distrust in your foundation and distrust in your connection to who God is. And I think once you understand more fully who you are and who God is, it it allows you to open these doors and yes. allows you to hear and to glean the wisdom from other streams of this big, large tradition that every Christian is a part of, that all people are a part of. And once you do that, I feel like that's when it gets exciting. And that's when it gets... Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the in the Western tradition, and this is a generalization, of course, but Western expressions of Christianity have their sense of rightness is contingent. It's contingent upon everybody else's wrongness. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in order for me to really believe that I'm right about Jesus, mm-hmm. I have to expend some amount of energy proving that you know, uh, my friend is wrong about Buddha or my other friend is wrong about liberalism or my other friend is wrong about yeah. hell or my other friend is wrong about, right? So so I I have to form a kind of attack on everyone else and, and their wrongness actually is confirmation of my rightness. Ascetical theology would, would say that that is little more than a shell game of the ego that you're wow. you've been given a lane a groove to kind of run in to flow in and that um you know uh, suiting up and attacking other people when that becomes a, a kind of spiritual practice for you it's actually a distraction from the the inner work that you need to do rather than a complement to it and so that's a big difference yeah. i would say between ascetic theology and kind of traditional western theology yeah yeah, some people talk about like the these shadow games that we play that I would spend more time dealing with what's out there in in your world and I can tell you what's wrong with you instead of having to deal with what's actually in front of me and who I actually am. Uh dare I say it is a way to run away from the dark and not experience the light. It's a way to like run away from your monsters then actually deal with them. That's a nice segue into my book right there, um, which I'm not going to take. So you've been studying this and you've been living there for how long now? Like on campus there? For, I've been on, I've been in New York for seven years, but I have been on campus here for a year. Okay. Actually, a year this month. What? How long is the program that you're... Well, it just depends, right? Like, um, I this is my third uh, seminary degree, if I were to complete this program. So I am basically... You know, they, they'll always... I always get my advisor will always email me and be like, hey, you're not taking any of the... 500 level courses you need, or you're not doing. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm just, I literally just look at a list of classes. I pick two or three things I like and I take them. 
and it doesn't really matter whether it advances me or fills a slot. So I could potentially finish something like this and do, you know, in a year and then you write a thesis. I probably won't. I probably will take two or three years here and whether or not I finish, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah, it's immaterial. Is that different for you to change gears? Because I would assume for many years it's, you know, let's accomplish, let's get to get the degree, get the, you know, the next thing and move up the, the ladder, so to speak. You know, I think in some ways, and maybe this is a kind of um, romanticization of my own decision-making processes, but I do believe that it is a kind of an expression. The fact that I'm here studying this, it makes sense that I have that approach. The idea that, you know, the journey is the destination, that would be a very kind of mystical way of thinking about rather than thinking about productivity, the accomplishment of goals, uh, completing something as sort of the, um, the point of justification that proves that that thing mattered. It's settling into it and realizing that if, if, uh, the paths that I choose are chipping away at me in the right ways, then it doesn't matter if I have a piece of paper at the end of it. If it's done its work, it's done its work. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that uh, a degree in some ways can just be a way to satisfy the ego because it gives you something to point to and say, look how good I am. It's a lot harder to say I spent three years and didn't finish. So I've, I've kind of put off um, concerns about finishing it because then it just adds another layer. Um, and instead I'm just like, okay, God, you've got me here. Tell me what to do next. And now tell me what to do next. And now tell me what to do next. And when you stop telling me to be here, I'll be gone. And if that means I walk away with something framed that can hang hang on my wall, I think that's lovely. And if not, I'm also okay with that. Yeah. 20 year old, 22 year old, Jonathan, could he have that Mm -hmm. attitude? No. Okay. No. Are Are there any things that you look at along the way? that would be big moments that would help you see how, you know, 22 year old Jonathan isn't in the driver's seat right now, enabling you to do that. Yeah. You know, Jonathan and at 20 at, well, look from 12 until probably in my young thirties and I'm 37 now, probably from say 12 when you're really kind of becoming an, an individuated human until, my early thirties, just a few years ago, I would say my whole life and particularly as an Enneagram three was built around proving myself, proving I was smart enough, proving that I could accomplish things, proving that I could argue someone into the ground, proving that I could preach a sermon that would get people to stand up and clap, proving that, you know, whatever. I, I, I feel like that I've had to undergo a kind of death And I also recognize that this kind of death has been a convenient one because I have accomplished so much. It's easy to die to your accomplishments when you have a lengthy resume. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard to to die to your accomplishments when uh, when you don't, when there's a big gap between who you are and who you want to be, where you are and where you want to go. And so, uh, you know, I don't pat myself on the back by saying, look what I've done. I've sort of made peace with that or I've died to my own inner achiever. But I do think I have been on a bit of a journey over the years. And one of the things that that has forced that I've been forced to do along the way is to stop placing um, 
the metric for my own self-worth in the, in the hands of other people. Yeah, I, I think it is a little bit disingenuous to say, just give up on accomplishing anything when you haven't done it, like when you don't have those skins on the wall, so to speak. R- Roar talks about, I think, in um, Falling Upward, or Immortal Diamond, I forget which one, but the idea like in the first half of life, y- you want to have something where y- this is your part of the earth, and this is the lever that you pulled to move the earth, and this is y- you did something. And that's a very first half of life sort of thing. And to disrespect the need to want to accomplish or to do something or get the skins on the wall, I think it's not really fair. It's not really you know genuine for us to treat someone else that way. Uh, it, it's so much easier to say that on the other side. Now, here's the problem, though. Not everyone gets to accomplish that. Not everyone gets to have those skins on the wall, and not everyone you know gets to have you know whatever it is that you and I would look back on and say, oh, this is a success that I've had, which makes me look at success and go, oh, it's not as important, you know. And so it. it it's dis- disingenuous to tell someone you don't need to do that, but it's also disingenuous to say, you know, it, it, it helped me be able to look at it and go, it's not as important, right? I think I would say it this way. It's that, it's that this kind of goal-oriented uh, way of thinking about accomplishment is not that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. It's not that that's wrong and my way is right. It's that what I think the work for me is, is trying to um, recognize all the other accomplishments, that goal-oriented Western hustle culture overlooks. Yeah. That I woke up this morning and, you know, I had a lot of anxiety and I had to manage that. And it didn't get me closer to a goal and nobody heard about it, but it was really brave for me and it was something I had to do. And what an accomplishment that was. That when you sit and you you meditate or you do whatever you do. Like there's an accomplishment in that, that every breath is an accomplishment. Um, and so it's a, it's a slightly, it's not saying that that accomplishment doesn't matter. It's saying that when I realize that there are a thousand accomplishments between this moment and that moment that I don't have to hang my entire sense of identity on that one thing. Hmm. Okay. So now one's line which I used for the the monster of success is that one of the three lies we're all tempted to believe is I am what I do. And I've always processed that. Like if I'm you, I am what I do is, you know, I I write for this and I've, you know, I've been on this show and I I have this platform and it's just like the big ones. And I, I like the reframe you just did there to go you to deal with your anxiety this morning, which no one saw, no one heard about until now. Um, that is a big accomplishment that you should, you should cherish that, right? right? And I think you're on to something. I don't have it processed yet, but you're on to something to celebrate those small things as just as important. Because I'm, I'm a checklist guy. Every day I have a checklist. I want to get it done. I want to accomplish everything. And maybe I should start putting some stuff on there that I usually wouldn't put on there. Yes. Well, and, and what's interesting is, is there are certain characteristics um, that kind of mark off the types of accomplishments that matter the most to us. And it usually has to do, it either has a product or it has an accolade or um, it it is something that is known, right? Mm -hmm. If you take things that are unknown, that do not have an accolade, that have no product, that you have nothing to show for it in a, in a, the capitalistic mind says, if you accomplish something, you should have something to show for it. You should have money, a profit, a product, a sense, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, the praise of other people, there should be some marker. It's not, um, you, you can't really quantify 
a sense of peace. No. And- um, you can't quantify those sorts of things. And so uh, we, we, as I think capitalistic Westerners, we, we devalue those things and overvalue the other things. Yeah, it's about the Where, value. By the way, other cultures, I'm sorry I'm interrupting already, but other cultures would actually say they would be ashamed there are some cultures where they're ashamed to get praise and compliments and receive an award. It's actually, it, it, there's a shame that comes with that, right? That you would be exalted above other people. Or if you, there are other cultures where if you earn more than your other neighbors because of your own hard work and you don't share that wealth, Haiti is a great example of this, then that's shameful. The, that, the, so the, the idea that like, Yes, of course, this is objectively something we should celebrate at a higher level is a very Western concept. Yeah, what you just described is not the world that I've ever inhabited. Th- th- that's not, mm-hmm. that doesn't, doesn't come naturally at all. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, w- now I'm processing that. Like, it, it is so, uh, I've heard people say, like Suzanne Stabile says, you know, we're in a three country. And the mentality of success is just so ingrained in us that we have built built into us like the understanding that success determines where you stand when i was early on preaching i started preaching this interdenominational bible study and you know a thousand people were coming to it for you know west texas town of abilene you know we had you know ten thousand eight thousand college students in the town to get a thousand kids to come to it was a big deal and so it was seen as like oh that is super successful and so early on in my preaching career i would i found out that whenever i would tell someone i was a preacher the first question they would ask is, well, how many people come listen to you preach? How many people are at the Bible study? How big is your church? And when I would say there's a thousand people there, the response from people was just, it, it was intoxicating. Because all of a sudden, the question they were trying to determine is like, are you a winner? Are you in the winner's circle? Do, do we need to respect you because your world is uh, big enough and bright enough? And you know, you growing up with your dad, President of Southern Baptist Convention, mega church in Atlanta, you were preaching there early on, right? When you were pretty young, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all those things were just rewarded in you because you have all these talents that people see and go, oh, you are a winner. L- let me treat you accordingly. Has, has that been your experience, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. This it's, I mean, you know, it's very easy again in the Western conception to go, oh, look, you care so much about quote success. And, and we can, we sort of, um, when we over-spiritualize, we will look down on people like me, like Enneagram 3s or whatever. And we all have a little 3 in us. But <laughs> uh, the truth is, is that we're not realizing that we are a product of the system, that we've been enculturated, we've been um, conditioned um, through these positive and negative feedback mechanisms. It's like training a dog for 30 or 40 years and, you know, you, you ring the bell and they get hungry and you blame them for feeling hungry. Yeah. Um, the culture that we're in has made us this way. Yeah. And um, we, we didn't even willingly submit to it. It was just the water that we were tossed in as like baby fish. And so now, of course, you know, we think in terms of numbers, budgets and sizes and accolades and degrees and um, it's not that those things are wrong things or bad things. It's just that we're telling, I think, a very incomplete story about what it means to be human. What's the incomplete, like, what's the other part that we need to tell? If that's the incomplete? Well, the, in- the incomplete story is that, it, well, essentially, is that, um, that, that, that the, the core verb 
that gives the noun human meaning and value is do. Yep. That that's the ultimate verb. That um, it is what you do that determines whether or not you've done this human thing well. Whether you've really inhabited your life depends on what you do. And, um, you know, that's why we, when, when you read an obituary, an obituary will not talk about the fact that I got up this morning and dealt with my anxiety. It's mm-hmm. not the way that we tell that story. It doesn't, it, it, we're sorting those facts by looking through the lens of the do verb. Yeah. And I think that, 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 that is just a, it is a product of the time and the place in, in which we live. But, you know, I, I went to recently to onsite and I think, you know, some people have been to onsite this it's in te- Tennessee. And one of the things they do is they don't let you use your last name. They don't let you have any social media or technology, and they do not let you speak about what you do. And you would be shocked at how difficult it is, particularly for an Enneagram three to have a conversation. Because how do I tell you the very first thing if you meet me and you're like, hey, tell me about yourself, I would say, I'm a writer. This is where I come from. This is what I do. This is what I've done. I'm an author. I'm a columnist. I lead with that. And I've been conditioned to lead with that. And it, and it doesn't make me a bad person. It makes me a product of the world that, that I lived in and, and that, I, that I do live in. But I do think it's so interesting. Try that sometime. No. Meet someone, if you're listening to this, meet someone and say, for the first time that I meet them, I am not going to answer what I do. And even if they ask you what you do, answer in the most vague way possible and then shift it back to them and see what that feels like. You walk away feeling like someone doesn't know you. And that's such an odd experience to think that if you don't know what I do, you don't know who I am. Now we're inserting am, we're inserting another verb. That's a different verb. It's the be verb. And when you begin to think that the, that the be verb is dependent on the do verb, now you've really messed things up. Now you've, now you've begun to define the essence of who you are by something outside of that self. And that becomes a maddening rat race because it, it is a full-time job to continue to prop up your sense of identity through constant accomplishment. Yeah. You said a second ago that we all have a little bit of three in us. And it reminded me of another thing Suzanne Stabile said is that every woman who's spent time in, especially like a American, Southern American Christian world acts a little bit like a two because the culture has kind of said you need to be an Enneagram too. That's what you know a, a good Christian woman acts like. If you step back a minute and you go, our entire country is an Enneagram three country, that like maybe that's what you're saying, that every one of us has a little bit of three in us. And so if you don't answer who you are based on what you do, which by the way, as someone who likes to bounce around having the preacher conversation on airplanes, and quite often I do that very, it, it comes somewhat naturally now, just because... And it's a different experience with people. And it's, I, I thought about it just because it's, you know, like if, if someone finds out you're a pastor, they just treat you differently. But maybe it's more mm-hmm. than that of, there's no way to, like, to gauge where you are on the, the, the social pecking order, right? Because you don't know how to do that. Uh, it, it seems that once, 
to move away from success as determining you, losing and failure has to be in the equation somewhere. It has to be central for almost everyone to move out of that. How have you experienced failure as a catalyst in moving away from some of the destructive ways that success has a hold of us? Or you? Oh, gosh, yes. Well, first of all, if you're going to be a writer today, and of course now you're with, with both of the books that you've written, you're already realizing this. Although I think as a, as a pastor, you have to realize this um, as well, which is like if you're going to survive doing what we do in the world in which we live, you have to find a way to, in best case scenario, fall in love with. Worst case scenario, learn to tolerate rejection. You have to learn to tolerate failure. You have to learn to tolerate or embrace or love um, being told no, um, to try and not succeed and try, try again and not succeed again. You have to learn to do that and you have to learn to, um, to see failures in a larger narrative in which you're living. Because, because otherwise, if you don't see it within a larger narrative, it becomes the end-all, be-all. It becomes the same thing that everybody else is experiencing, where you live and die on your GPA. You live and die on whether or not you got the promotion. You live and die on whether or not you got the job. How many people are showing up for you know, a Sunday morning service? How many people buy my book? The, the, because we live in a culture where everything is quantified, it's easy to tell the story. Uh, it's, 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 it's empirical. You can really, you can point to a metric and say whether or not you did better or worse than someone else. But uh, I think that for me, I have had to be told no a lot. I have, you know, I'm working on a book right now and um, the first, this is the third idea. The first two ideas didn't work. And are those failures? I suppose they were, they were in, to some degree failures if you look at them as if that is a self-contained narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, I do a lot of storytelling. So if you think of a failure, right? Somebody tries to do something and it doesn't work out. Think about that as like a chapter in a book. If I were to open up chapter six of a James Patterson novel and I read about a character who tried something and it didn't work out, Well, if I were to read that entire book, what I might find out is that that played into something that was not exactly a failure, right? Mm -hmm. It it was in some way critical to uh, teaching them the skills they needed to be successful later, or they learned a lesson that served them well, or it placed them in a room with someone that they needed to know. But if all you do is read chapter six, I think you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You're going to think this is a bad book. And it may have a happy ending. It just was. It just had a difficult. It's a difficult chapter six. So many people um, read their lives as a series of successes and failures by chapter and chapter, rather than trusting that they are co-authoring with someone outside of themselves. We call that someone God. A story that has to be better than they think it is because it's operating on different metrics. Mm-hmm. And so, if you can begin to trust that there is a chapter or a series of chapters further down that will help you make sense of this chapter six that you're in, uh, that will help you see it in a way you just cannot see it now because of your limited knowledge, then your ears can come, your your shoulders can come down from around your ears. You can relax, you can can exhale. 
you can begin to say, yes, I guess this can be called a failure because that's a word that points to something. It points to something not, not aligning with my expectation of, of, or my hope for the way that would work out. But you don't have to get mad about it or you don't have to see it as a reflection of your character or your value or your worth. Yeah. And I think that's a big differentiation. Yeah, I think that being able to differentiate between a project's success and failure and your success and failure is really difficult to get to. As as a writer, like you, you constantly write things that just get thrown away. Whether you're writing a sermon or you're, write, I mean, the old school Twitter world where you only can get 140 characters in the tweet, it's a perfect metaphor for you write 200 characters, but you know 60 of them aren't going to make it in. When you write a book, you know there are certain things that are just going to get cut away, and you know some book ideas are not going to work out. Right. But you have to understand that there's something bigger going on, and when we when we experience failure and we experience defeat right now. It seems that we don't have sometimes the narrative understanding that this is a chapter that is part of the larger story. I don't know if you've been watching the last dance documentary about Michael Jordan. I'm guessing mm-hmm. you have or haven't. I've seen the first, uh, the oh, first just... episode. I haven't followed it along with everybody else. Everybody's obsessed over it. I know. Yeah. Okay. But it tells story after story. It's obviously a story of success, like six championships. It's the story of, a, oh. but they have worked hard to put in failure after failure after failure to get so that when you have the ultimate success at the end, they're still part of like, oh, wow, this is something bigger that's going on. Even Michael Jordan at the very end, he ends with, it's not really a story that ends in success. It's a story that ends in failure because he wants to come back and try the next season, but he's told no. And it seems like we just see success as an end-all, be-all of this is the end of the story. And it's hard to put it in the bigger context. What are practices that you found that help people put it into that bigger context of this isn't just you writing the story, this is something bigger going on? Well, I think some of that for me, it's different when you're, when you're a journalist because um, you're having to do both. You're having, on the one hand, to deal with chapter six because that's the story you're telling. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just, you, you can only tell a, a piece of the story, right? You, when you're writing an article, you're just word count. It's just, it's just limited. Yep. But I think over time I've begun to trust that I don't get too excited about positive stories and I don't get too depressed when it comes to negative stories because I just see the way these things have and flow. I mean, look, imagine when we were younger, the way that people wrote about the emergent church. Imagine, imagine the breathless, the, the, the breathlessness, the anger, the despair, the hope, all the emotions. You know what? Do you know what I think about the emergent church? I don't. Nobody does. It doesn't exist anymore. It was a blip on the radar screen. And yet so much emotion was wasted on that, right? So I, as we spend our lives watching trends rise and fall, things that are forgotten, people being fickle you begin to realize that um, the highs are not as high as you think. The lows are not as low as you think. And the important practice is as you experience the highs and lows that you learn to stay grounded in the midst of that. So I think a lot of people have grounding practices for when things are lower than they should be. But a lot of people don't have grounding practices for when things are higher than they should be. They don't go, wait a minute, don't celebrate, ground yourself, center yourself. 
Um, but when, but when things are lower than they should be, you go, wait, don't get depressed. Don't spiral Hmm. ground yourself. And I think there is a kind of practice, particularly for threes to remain grounded, humble, centered, aware of the true nature of your own identity in the midst of your greatest accomplishments, because those are the moments when there, there are not going to be a lot of people tapping you on the shoulder and telling you to make sure that, that you're healthy and that you're staying tethered uh, to planet earth. That's going to be, that's nobody's going to say that nobody's going to, they're going to be swept up with you in the emotion of the wind. You're, you're 100% correct about that. The failure requires you to remember who you are. This isn't your identity. I, you know, I had a practice when I was playing a church and the church wasn't having the numerical sex success that I wanted. Uh, and I had this prayer, you know, even the seats are empty, may my heart be full. And I prayed every Sunday, even the seats are empty, may my heart be full. I've never thought of what a breath prayer like that would be for success. If you had success and it becomes unmanageable for you, do you have like practical examples of things that have tethered or you or you would recommend or prescribe for someone going through success? Well, you know, I think the other thing, I think what you're saying there is interesting because I can only speak for myself, but I would say this is generally true. Your heart is also empty when the seats are full because your heart is not full of what the heart should be full of. Your heart is full of um, your own sense of self-importance, right? So so your heart is not full if like um, the next week, it can be completely drained yep. by the thing that pumped it up, right? In that case, you're just on a roller coaster ride. You just happen to be at the crest rather than the trough. Uh, the question is, is whether the state of your heart can remain constant, whether the seats are full or the seats are empty. And so you're right. I think that's a very good practice. It's a very good prayer. And on the other side, we need practices and prayers to keep our hearts full when the seats are also full. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people, you know, uh, 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 not a lot of people have that. I mean, I know that, that you, you look at mystics throughout the centuries, and there were times when mystics prayed for humiliation. Uh, you know, there's the great prayer uh, or the great, the great quote from um, Walter Brueggemann mm-hmm. where he says, and, and I'm probably going to butcher the quote, but roughly – that um, the world for that the world for which you have been carefully prepared is being taken away from you by the grace of God. The idea is is that um, failure is a grace in a lot of ways. The seats being empty or not being full is a grace because it's it has an opportunity to teach you something. Um, or you could think about it this way: if you are a three. Or if you're just an achievement-oriented person, let's say you don't identify as a three, maybe the three is your wing, or you or you act like a three when you're healthy or not healthy, but you've got some sort of three energy. You're you're, you're an achiever in some in, in some way. Uh, you have to uh, realize if you look back at your life that there are two things that can um, that can destroy you: success and failure. And especially when they come in that order. Yeah. And if you're yeah. not careful, if you're not watching for that, right? Oftentimes success is just the setup. It's That's just so the, the, the thing that tees up your greatest heartbreak. And a lot of people allow themselves to be teed up, myself included. You allow yourself to be put on that pedestal. You allow yourself to feel elevated. 
you allow yourself to believe the lie that, as you said, is now and said, I am what I do. And all of that is, is just a big giant setup for a heartbreak that's coming. And it may not come tomorrow and it may not come five years from now, but it will come because you cannot eventually you have to come off the mountaintop. That is the way of the world is death is it's life, death and resurrection. And you may have gotten you may have gotten a gift and you got a little bit more in your life phase before your death phase came. But it will come. You will eventually topple off. And if you believe that lie, if you haven't repaired yourself when that when that when that when you have to face that monster then I think uh, I think you find yourself ill prepared, and that includes probably ninety nine percent of people who who uh, encounter failure will tell you they are not prepared for it when it comes. And the reason they're not prepared for it is because they didn't do the work when they were in the success phase. They didn't do the work when they were on the crest. They were just celebrating. Yep, I I, I think your observation that success before failure can be the most lethal combination because something mm-hmm. happens in on the crest that we become intoxicated with all the secondary things that come with success that it starts to define us and when you have tasted and you lose the taste of it it seems like it's even it's even more painful right mhm wow yeah and and i i had written an article uh well it was actually in my my last book and i published it christianity today about disillusionment and in it i talk about these dopamine cycles and the way they work Capitalism is perfectly designed to enlist our biochemistry to reinforce the lie that I am what I do. Yep. Capitalism works in capitalism works along with your with your physiology, your body chemistry. Because what happens is is you you achieve a success, and capitalism says everybody celebrate that guy. And when people celebrate you, when people tell you you're good, you're loved, you're wanted, you're successful, you matter, your dopamine level spike. You have a, you have a, essentially, you've got a, a brain chemical that is secreted. And then you begin to expect, and it's the way these chemicals work, you expect if I try it again, I'm likely to have the same result. And mm-hmm. so you try it again and you get the same result. You preach another sermon and people like it. You go, you show back up again and the pews are full. And so your dopamine levels rise higher and higher and higher with each expectation. And then when it doesn't happen, when you pull that lever and it's not three cherries, you don't get the jackpot, nothing falls out. Instead, it's a complete and total failure. You yell into the void and nobody shouts back. You have a double fall. You not only fall from the failure that you would have experienced to begin with of not getting what you want, but you have a double crash because you now have been humiliated by the fact that you expected to be successful to begin with. And so that's where I think this kind of um, capitalistic and biochemical feeding of Nouwen's lie is actually one of the most insidious that we face. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. That's spot on. Well, John, I feel like we've uh, solved the issue of success. And, you know, I, and I will tell you, I don't know if people have read your book. And, and if you haven't read it, you should. And I don't, I don't recommend uh, books lightly. I think you, you, probably, you probably know that. And if people are familiar with me, um, they know that as well. But I'll tell you one thing that I loved about uh, the way that you talked about this in the book is you talk about it in those four phases. If people read this, they know this, the prop, the pull, the point, the light. But to tie back to what I was saying, we, the, the goal, the light, 
really that is in many ways the goal of every great mystic in the Christian uh, tradition. Mm -hmm. The notion that you will lose yourself in God, that you are actually subsumed into God's heart, that the self and the identity is no longer subsumed, it's no longer consumed by your successes, your resume, your uh, pats on the back, the number of seats um, in the in the auditorium that are full, but you're actually subsumed into God. So you go, it doesn't matter if people show up because I am loved, because I am loved, because I am loved. And as God's beloved, that is all that I need. Now, I am not there yet, but the, every great mystic has said, when you begin to, to face your monsters, that if you push hard enough, if you lean hard enough into the presence of God, that is where you will find yourself is ultimately the loss of the self. Mm. And, uh, and I thought that your framework, you know, it was your framework. It was unique. I've never seen anything like that, but I did recognize the parallels, you know, as I'm, 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 you know, studying Hildegard von Bingen um, or Thomas Merton or Julian of Norwich or uh, Margaret, uh, Marguerite uh, Poret or a uh, Simone Weil. Uh, you know, every great mystic uh, has said essentially that the goal of, 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 of uh, confronting our monsters, our shadows, is holy union. It's that you cease to be, there is now a new you that is the you that is held within God. And I think, when I think about my journey facing the shadow side of my own threeness, the, what you call the light, that's really where I hope to end up. Hmm. Well, obviously your kind words about the book are deeply appreciated. And I love the way you said it. That's, uh, yeah, that's spot on. It's all about the light. It's all about being connected to, to God. I think that the good news for us is even when you lose, what happens is that you are found by the one who is always with you the entire time. And that what you find mm-hmm. in success mm-hmm. is often we become uh, intoxicated and unable to see what's right in front of us. And in failure, there's an opportunity to disregard mm-hmm. this false self, which we've you know, clung onto for so long. And when it finally falls away and success pulls that or failure pulls that like clinging for success away from you, what happens is you finally realize you've been found by the one who's been there the whole time. And there's good news for that. So, uh, you know, Jonathan, full circle, you started off Church of Christ first Episcopalian. Uh, Let me just make a note that uh, the presiding bishop of the Episcopalian Church endorsed the book. So I think what he's saying is we all need to look at the Church of Christ for real truth and light. And the Episcopal Church said that. Basically, that's basically what I interpret his, his endorsement to say. There you go. It's like Pope, Pope Francis of the Episcopal Church. I love it. Yeah, that's basically it. So, uh, you know, Jonathan, thank you for the podcast. Uh, people obviously need to follow you on Instagram. Uh, your stuff, uh, the eavesdrop, it's, a, it's been good. You've got some good people on there. Really excited. This will come yeah. out in two weeks from now. So how long are you going to be doing the eavesdrop? Will, you, will this season go on for a while? I, 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 I may be doing it still, but I, I'd say two weeks is, is, I'd love to be done in two weeks. It's a lot of work. It's okay. a lot of work. Okay, well then don't go follow Jonathan because you want don't the go. extra. But you, can, but you can still connect with me on, okay. <laughs> on Instagram. You just, you just probably won't be able to see very many live interviews. I may go down to like once a month. We'll see. You should. You should do that. All right, man. Well, thanks for the time. It's good to see you. Glad you're back in New York. Safe and sound for now. All right. My pleasure. Thanks for letting me be on uh, the podcast and best of luck with your book. I loved it. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. 
Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>